Hello, hello. Um, welcome. Um, bienvenidos to our second Chicana Mother Work podcast. My name is Cecilia Caballero. I'm here with um, some of the mujeres from the Chicana Mother Work podcast and two special guests who will announce um, very briefly. But first, we want to um, open this podcast to a dedication to um, two mujeres who, uh, two local mujeres here in Boyle Heights who were um, killed just last month in February 2016. Um, and the reason we're dedicating the podcast to these two women is because it's important to um, honor and remember our fellow local brown mujeres, our brown women, um, as a result of systemic gender-based violence. And the two that we want to honor today, their names are Maria Cordova and Corina Campos. Um, and although I personally don't know them, um, we want to, we know that our struggles for justice are interconnected and they're interrelated. Um, all of our struggles, whether it's for reproductive justice, for safer streets, um, access and mobility, um, because we know that these two young women were just killed just far too young. So um, the first young woman, Maria Cordova, she was um, a passenger in a car that was um, shot at in a drive-by shooting last month, and she um, passed away in the, in the aftermath of the crash. And um, she was actually pregnant. And um, so I just invite um, you know, local Boyle Heights residents or outside of Boyle Heights to just remember Maria Cordova. She, um, she passed away. Um, she was not able to survive or raise her child. And so along with Maria Cordova, we want to also honor and remember Corina, who, uh, Corina Campos. And last month in Boyle Heights, um, she was a 26-year-old woman who was getting her uh, five-year-old daughter out of a car you know, during daylight hours and um, in the morning, I believe, and another car just kind of randomly came and hit her and killed her. And um, her daughter survived, but, um, you know, so these are just two cases of um, violence against women, mothers, young mothers, young mujeres who um, passed away um, for senseless violence. And we want to, um, dedicate the podcast to them and to honor them in their memory and um also if anyone knows Maria Cordova or the families of Corina Campos um please let us know uh, on social media um you know we we would like to remember uh, more of them than just the way that they passed away um so please contact us if you know um if someone uh, knows these women or more of their stories so um with that said, we are going to um, move on to the intentions for this podcast. So um, I'm going to pass it over to um, Judy. So who is this podcast for? Um, although the five of us are Chicana PhD moms, um, we also wanted to make this space for women who have already graduated or are no longer in academia, or moms that um, took a break from academia or school or women that were not um, able to go to school or in academic spaces since a few, a few of us have gone to that point as we know. Um, the school system is so bad that many of our youth are pushed out of academia pipeline. Um, however, the numbers are improving and even um, here locally in the LA area, there are amazing teachers of color who are from the community, born and raised here, who are working to change this, um, their classrooms and beyond. Um, so we wanted to invite um, teacher mamas of color to come and share with us as well as mamas in other spaces beyond the academic context like um, Marianne and her activist work for multicultural communities for mobility. Um, this work is so crucial and I know firsthand um, as mamas who don't, um, who don't drive <laughs> and um, Chela, the work that has, has to be down, um, the founders of Ovario um, Cycles. And you could talk a little bit more about it, Ceci? Yeah, so um, part of the intentions for the podcast is although as Judy was saying, although um, the five of the women who are in the Chicana Motherwork uh, group, you know, all, although the five of us um, identify as uh, Chicanas and we're mothers and we're all um, in PhD programs or have graduated, um, as Judy was talk was mentioning, we want to make space for um, other mothers of color um, who have not been able to access these spaces of higher education because of all these institutional and uh, institutional barriers which has prevented um, you know, women of color from 
moving along in higher or moving up in higher education. So, um, so you know, shoutouts to Marianne and uh, Jella who've done work with ovarian psychos. Um, hopefully, in the future, we could have them come and speak on the show about their work and their mothering work and how that informs their political organizing. Hi everyone, this is Christine. Um, good to be here again. I uh, have the honor to introduce our, our, our another one of our Chicana Motherwork members, but also two Chingonas who have shared space with. Um, our first one, uh, we want to introduce Judy, uh, which she's part of the Chicana Motherwork Collective. Hi everyone, I'm sorry I missed last uh, podcast, but my name is Judy. I am a Chicana baby mama, I have three kids, uh, my four-year-old um, Lunita and my two-year-old uh, boy Tino, Faustino, and my little baby four months, um, Joaquin. And I am actually from the University of Utah, I'm doing my PhD out there, but I moved out here um, as soon as I, was, I found out I was pregnant with my second one um, to get some support from my mom um, that they live out here. So um, they've been making it happened for me and then when she found out I was pregnant again she's like okay hold on take it easy <laughs> um, but uh, yeah so I've been trying to finish up my my PhD from from distance so I communicate with my with my chair um, and go to Utah here and there um, I, I, my, I'm doing my PhD uh, educational leadership and policy um, out there and um, yeah that's that's all what's your research on Judy it's, I look into specifically, um, I'm looking into a program, Diversity Scholars Program, so I want to know the experiences of first-generation um, Chicano, Chicano um, students, um, first-generation, first and what can we do to better serve them, because a lot of them, um, those that do enter into um, first uh, our universities, a lot of them don't end up uh, graduating from there, so what can we do, and I look into the specific first-year program on what they're doing to improve those rates. What's your favorite color? Maroon. What's your favorite food? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> I have a favorite. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. We're happy that you're here with us. And now we have the honor to introduce um, our very own Mothers of Cohen Academia Collective uh, founding members, um, Nora and Liana. And we're going to pass the mic so they can introduce themselves. Really excited to have them here. Hi, I'm Liana Hidalgo, and I'm in my fourth year of a PhD at UCLA Chicana Chicano Studies Department. Um, I identify as a Central American. My father's from El Salvador, and I spent most of my childhood in Guatemala. I have a 19-month-old daughter named Paloma Valentina Hidalgo Newton. It's a mouthful. I study street vending and the social, political, and economic strategies of black and Latino low-income but culturally wealthy entrepreneurs. And I really believe that um, street vendor struggles over space and the resistance can teach us a lot about contemporary urban struggles in the city um, that are really important to understand. And I also have a blog, The Big Girls Code. And so I've been blogging actually since I started the PhD. And so, yeah, that's me. Hello everyone, um, I'm Nora. Hi everyone, sorry about that. My name is Nora Cisneros. I grew up in Inglewood, Compton. Some of you may have heard of those cities. Um, and I'm now in the fourth year of a PhD program in education at UCLA. Um, I identify as Chicana and Native American. My mom is Mexicana. I was born in Mexico and my dad is Pascoyaki from Arizona and also from Mescalera Apache of New Mexico. So I'm multi what folks call multi-heritage and I'm interested um, specifically in, in terms of research. I research the educational trajectories, access of multi-heritage indigenous peoples in California. Um, and I have two amazing kids that have been up way too much all week. I have a three and a half year old, Lali Itzel Mendoza, um, and a five month old, Antonio Mendoza. And um, I, I live close to family, so I'm very, and they're very supportive, and that's why I could be here today. So it's it's like um, six of us in this in this little room. So we're like, pass the mic. We're, we're, y'all want to scoot this way? 
Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna have the mujeres um, take the the lead in the conversation so they can talk about the teaching we had um, last week. Was it last week already? I feel like it was two weeks ago. Um, the undercomments teaching. So we're gonna pass it over to the mujeres. Um, before we do that, I wanna talk about a little bit about some statistics that can contextualize why we did this. So we had another comments teaching on Tuesday, March 8th. We shared our experiences struggling with limited or lack of childcare, breastfeeding, or pumping on campus. I wanna share some numbers with you all to set context about how the MOCAs came about. You can also find the supporting documents on our website at www.chicanamotherwork.wix.com, my site, for, um, so I'm going to pull from a recent policy brief um, called Still Falling Through the Cracks. And if you're familiar with the Chicana Chicano Latino Pipeline, which came out in 2000 and was it 10? That was, was it, I think that was 2010, no? The pipeline. Can't remember. Sorry, I'm not remembering my citations. But we have a more recent one from 2015 um, that came out late, late last year. And we will put this link up on our website. Um, and it's from like this, the same the same group of scholars. So just to kind of contextualize what I'm talking about, the the recent attrition numbers of Chicanas and Latinas from 100 Chicanas, two will obtain an advanced degree in which 0.2%, not even a whole complete person, will obtain a PhD degree. Accordingly, women who have um, who have children during doctoral studies were discriminated discriminated at a much larger rate than men. And this is another study from Mason and Golden in 2013, Do Babies Matter? You, we can also put that up for your, for your convenience. Women having children within five years from receiving their doctoral degree are also 20 to 25% less likely to receive tenure. Likewise, 62% of tenure women in social sciences do not have children. And so these really, these numbers really impacted how we have experiences, experienced the trajectory of being Chicana, Latina, um, PhD mothers in the institution. All right, so this is Yvette speaking. Um, if you were wondering about the Chicano pipeline, I just Googled it. 2006. Okay. So the original pipeline was um, 10 years, ten ago. years ago. Yeah, so we've got the updated one, thank goodness. Um, but um, going back to the undercommons teaching, so uh, let me just talk a little bit about what we actually did, and then we're going to have our guest speakers expand more on their narratives. So we talked about how uh, structurally we're not supported as mothers and as parents, and that's why it's so hard to be a parenting student. It's not that it's impossible, it's just that we're not provided with the resources necessary to be able to thrive in academic settings. Some of the resources are centered around issues of reproductive justice, breastfeeding, lack of childcare, etc. Um, I remember one audience member shared with us that day that she has to leave her kids several days a week, maybe, I think it was three days, mm -hmm. do you yeah, recall? Okay. It was three days out of the week she has to leave her kids so she can come to campus to LA to take her classes. And that, kind, that just reminds me, it brings to, to mind the sacrifices that we have to make as mothers and as parents. So for the teaching, we ended the teaching with... Um, sharing with others the ways that they can be supportive to us by offering us childcare, by creating spaces that are child-friendly, by signing our petition, which we'll talk a little bit more about um, after the narratives, and also by joining us for our day of action. We're gonna have a big action on May 10th on campus, Dia de las Madres, and we hope that the community can come out and support. So with that being said, I want to open the mic to Nora and Liana so they can talk to us a little bit about reproductive agency, breastfeeding, daycare struggles, and feeling visible or invisible on campus. Hi, this is Liana. Um, so before I start sharing about reproductive agency, I do want to give a special thank you to the undercommies who invited us into their space to share our narratives. And um, this space, in case you're not familiar with it, um, it was formed by the Black Infinity Complex, a group of black students on campus who have been organizing um, this space on Jan Steps on campus where we can have fugitive learning and think about the things that concern us the most. And so it was really beautiful that they invited us week one to come and share our narratives. And so we're really thankful to them for giving us that opportunity. And now I'll get to sharing about reproductive agency. Um, so for myself, uh, reproductive agency um, very early on plays out um, 
in me really not feeling agency um, since I was very, very young, always feeling, you know, coming from a Central American family, very, very religious. I'm the daughter of a Central American La Salvadoreño uh, reverend and also uh, um, my father. And so I always felt like my body and my sexuality was policed very early on. And so um, it was always people talking about um, how short my skirt was, who I was talking to, how my lipstick was, how my hair was painted. Um, so I always felt, you know, policed. And um, that kind of just followed me on. Um, once I got into school, the whole stereotype of like a Latina pregnant dropout, I felt like carried on and I felt like I was policed by teachers. And um, when I did decide to become sexually active as a teen, um, I remember just feeling so paranoid and just knowing that I could not get pregnant. Um, and, you know, taking, using condoms, taking the pill, and then also spermicide, and then still going to Planned Parenthood and just being very paranoid about getting pregnant and those kinds of feelings and emotions just followed me even as I became an adult and even once I was in college and even once I was married uh, all of those um, policing of my sexuality and my body just continued and then I remember being 30 and um, having a 14 year old girl who um, was a foster youth come into our program and it was an organization that I had invited to come and look at our department and share my research um, with them and this 14 year old was like I want to go to law school um, but I also want to have a family and I was like dude you don't have to decide you can do both and she and you know she looked at me and I looked at her and I just realized that I was lying to her because I didn't believe that myself I was too scared at the age of 30 to do what I wanted with my body. And that was a real changing moment for me because I realized that if I'm going to be giving these consejos and this advice to our youth, that I need to be the brave one and do what I want with my body. Um, and so in terms of reproductive agency, that's my story. Thank you, Liana. Um, we've talked a lot about this before amongst each other is what it has meant for us to um, to own our, our bodies, own our reproductive choices, right? And oftentimes that's been um, a, a big struggle, particularly in academia. So again, sharing a very similar culture to or upbringing to Liana, I too have struggled um, growing up within my own family, within my own neighborhood, within my own school about um, owning, you know, my body and owning how, you know, desire and pleasure and sex, right, and really coming to own that and honor that. Um, and it became particularly problematic as an older, non-traditional student in academia, um, particularly because I was at an age where this is something that I wanted to do, it's something that I had made a choice of to become a mother, and I was going through multiple um, um, failed pregnancies to be able to get to that point. And finally, once I was able to become pregnant with my three-year-old, um, it was really hard to not um, to know that I could not share that joy in my department, that it would be seen as um, as a, a lack of commitment, particularly because it happened right when I was trying to get into the PhD program. So even though I had a, a very, and still have a very supportive, and you actually unconditionally supportive advisor, he's been amazing. Um, he is one of a handful, maybe in, in all of, the, in all of um, my academic experience that was very rejoiced and supportive. Um, but in terms of, of actually um, being able to take care of myself through the failed pregnancies and through the labyrinth of going through all the emotions of being able to conceive, um, there's no support for that on campus. So even when there are, you know, a few random parenting groups, it's not systematic, it's not critical, it's not supportive of, of ourselves as women and all the stages that we go through, even when we decide not to have children. Like that, that's a choice that has to be, that involves a lot of um, agency and it involves resources, right? And so I think going through all these sort of, through my journey of not wanting to have kids and then eventually wanting to have kids and not being able to, to an eventual pregnancy, um, going through that all throughout um, in, in academia has been very, um, and infuriating in many ways and I think it's what brings us here today to try to change some of those policies and, and cultural conditions on campus. Okay so um, this is Liana again and we're going to talk about breastfeeding. So I had to go back to campus and back to school when my daughter was um, only six weeks old and not because um, my body was ready to go back to school not because I had fully healed and was ready for that or emotionally I, that I was ready for that but because I was afraid 
that I would lose my funding and I couldn't afford to um, be um, without my funding. And so uh, I was forced to go back to school when she was only six weeks old. And um, breastfeeding was so difficult. Um, uh, all of a sudden being on campus and having to carry around a pump and realizing for the first time that the university was not designed for mothers. Um, realizing that there was no lactation rooms anywhere near my side of campus, which is North Campus. Um, realizing that um, was so difficult. And um, I was embarrassed. I was so embarrassed um, because I never thought I would be pumping in a bathroom. I thought, ew, that's gross. I'm never going to do that. But I was in a situation where I had to. And um, in, that be in that beginning, I just, I didn't want to. And so I would go to campus and I would have my pump and everything, but I wouldn't know where to pump. Um, it was so difficult to find a space that I would go long, long stretches without pumping. And so I think within the first few weeks of going to campus, I got um, um, mastitis. I actually, I got a clogged milk duct that was in, in between my breast and my armpit. And I had to go to urgent care and I had to get that cut and drained and also get an antibiotics. And so it was extremely painful. Um, I also had to get stitches, you know. So it, um, all this to say that uh, not having access to a proper place to lactate where you feel safe to lactate has health um, consequences, you know. So it's not just that, oh, we want places to lactate. It's actually our bodies biologically, we need places. Um, that are clean and that are safe where we feel comfortable. Um, um, in order to continue to offer our babies breast milk, you know, which is what doctors say is the healthiest. And, um, and we're not being allowed um, the space to do that and give milk to our babies when there aren't lactation rooms that are easily accessible on campus. I'm gonna hand it over to Nora. Thank you, Liana, and thank you, mamas. I think um, we've come around this issue of breastfeeding and our breastfeeding rights on campus because there are real real physical consequences to our, our breastfeeding journeys. And um, you know, we know that breastfeeding is correlated with positive outcomes for both our children, ourselves, right? And like Liana mentioned, as um, academic employees and as graduate students, we, we are not given um, or afforded the time or the maternity leave that a lot of other mothers um, may experience or that or that actually by state um, state policy extends to people outside of academia. So as graduate students, we're afforded four to six weeks of maternity leave or parental leave, depending on, on our position. So if, if you're fully funded, you can probably take more than six weeks. If you're working as a TA or as a graduate student researcher, as most women of, of color are in academia, we're, we're to come back in four weeks. So for both um, for both of my children, I had to come back at four to five weeks after my children were bo was born. And I echo Liana's statement about not physically being ready or, or willing to or wanting to come back. Um, but it being tied to funding, it being tied to a paycheck, it being tied to um, an academic identity that I that in some ways, you know, I'm also trying to trying to hone, right? Like I'm I'm an academic mother, I can do both. And, and it's been very intensive, right? And, and intense and um, and it's tied to the larger culture of being these badass moms and who do everything. And so it's been a struggle because I've, you know, in, in doing all that, we put our bodies through so much. Um, and I know m many mamas out there can relate to this in some way, whether you're working in academia or in another space where breastfeeding mothers are not supported, where you have to pump in bathrooms, where you have to do this in front of your colleagues that you may not know that you don't want to show your, your chichis to, right? Like when you're, when you're pumping, it, it's not, you know, it's, it's, a very, it's not conducive to that relaxed um, breastfeeding experience that we need to have. And also as graduate students on a very tight budget, as some folks know, like we all get WIC, we all get, you know, we qualify for food stamps. Um, and so affording foregoing breastfeeding is not really an option for a lot of us like we need to be able to give our our children that wonderful breast milk but we also can't afford that you know organic <laughs> formula that's like forty dollars a pop so it's tied to economic resources it's tied to campus um resources and and it's probably one of the easier things to solve i think unfortunately i mean fortunately on campus it's infrastructural right i think the cultural um, and then the discourses are going to be a little bit harder for us to to sort of push back on, but we're 
we're doing that, I think. Thank you, Nona. Uh, this is Liana again, and I'm going to talk about um, our experiences with daycare. Um, so I remember getting the tour of campus and hearing that they had um, daycare and that it was like one of the best in the country and it was available to graduate students. And I remember that that was like a really big wow factor for me because I was like, yes, you know, um, family friendly, you know. Um, but I f discovered after getting pregnant um, that that wasn't the case and that, in fact, their daycare had one and a half to three year wait lists um, to get in. And so a lot of people graduate without ever getting a spot for their children. Um, but fortunately for me, I had a really good friend who had just gone through the process and she informed me, you know, get on the list right away, even though I was only at the time, I think, you know, uh, only a few months pregnant, she was like, get on the list. So at six months pregnant, I was on the list. Um, I didn't get a spot until my daughter was 14 months old. So I waited a very, very long time. Um, and during that time, I was, I struggled a lot, you know, um, I'm fortunate that my partner was freelance um, between the two of us, you know, being out of state, not having any family support. I mean, lots of family support, but they're long distance. And so not family support in the sense of somebody who could watch our kids, I was or our child, and I was going through qualifying exams, it was a very difficult time to be able to work out our schedules that she could have care and and not knowing you know being new to the city like who do you trust with your child the most precious person you know um when your child can't talk and can't even tell you you know um if something happened you know so it was such a scary time um and you know i i feel that it's so wrong that we put so much of our time and our labor and our effort into um, students at UCLA and to teaching them and to teaching them how to be critical thinkers. Yet our children are at risk because we don't have safe places to put to put our children while we're teaching other people's children. So I feel like there's something so wrong in the way that we're treated as laborers um, on campus. And um, I'm grateful that I did finally get her care, but I know that it was because I had a friend who had told me gone through the process and told me call them every month you know and i would i would call them every month i would call in tears begging you know telling them about my situation and so um it shouldn't have to be like that you know um it shouldn't be a three-year wait it shouldn't be a year and a half wait um and so that's my experience um with daycare but also there's this feeling of, you know, that um, because it's a really good daycare and because we're subsidized because of our income, you feel like you're a guest there, you know? So it's like, you don't feel good being there. It's like they're doing you a favor, you know, when they're getting their money regardless from this grant, you know? Um, but it's this feeling when you are dealing with the administration and we're trying to get a spot where, where you just feel like you're a guest and like you're not entitled to that spot. You know, so I really don't appreciate that aspect of of the childcare that we're in. Thank you. Um, so my child is at the same center that Liana's um, child is, and we've talked about that last point you brought up about how welcome are we as graduate students on subsidized care. Um, because as I think almost every mom that lives in California, Los Angeles knows how expensive daycare is it can easily rival your rent right it can easily be the equivalent of two car payments a month and for us there was no waiting list if we could pay the almost two thousand dollars a month um, that's pretty much what we'd make on a in a good position at UCLA as a TA which those positions are hard to come by I forget to mention so again our our you know worker sort of positions are really closely tied to our reproductive choices and to our child care choices so um, for you know, when I was, I had a two-month-old, my three-year-old was two months when I started the doctoral program, I, and at the point, I came, so I had my child in the summer, so some folks in the doctoral program didn't know I had a kid, and again, although I was very happy internally, I was still trying to figure out whether this is something that I wanted to share at every class, or wanted to share with my colleagues, who might, a lot of them I didn't know very well yet, so I didn't have, or didn't meet anyone who said, hey, put your child on the waiting list, it wasn't until she was about I brought her into campus one day and folks were like, oh, you're a mom. And I'm like, yeah. 
And one person said, hey, I have a kid at a cent at the center here. Have you found out about it? And so by the time we got her on the wait list, um, suffice it to say that I didn't get into the daycare center until she was three. So it was about a two and a half year wait. So during the first three years, um, I'm fortunate that, that I do have a partner that, that helps out. Um, but of course, you all know how what this that could do to <laughs> to a very hardworking couple. Right. Or, you know, folks that are. Um, whose employment is contingent too, right? Like um, people might assume that like, oh, well, you have a partner, you're set. It's like, no, we're, we're both struggling to, to find jobs and we're both struggling to keep them. Um, and I can't, you know, couldn't rely on my mom completely full-time, even though she did do a lot of the caring for my daughter. Um, I missed a lot of major milestones that, you know, I was taking a class when she was learning how to walk, right? Um, you know, I was stuck in traffic when she was learning her first words, things like that. Um, but also it was really taxing on my family. So for me to have like, my mom has arthritis and for us to like really navigate how much she could help us with um, because we couldn't afford, you know, daycare. Um, so it's, it, I know it's just one story, but I know that there's plenty, I've talked to lots of other moms and, and parents on campus who are struggling with this idea of daycare in a field, in academia, that's so demanding of our time, of our service, right? Of our, of our community work, of our committee work, all these things that have to align for us to prove that we're academics in the traditional sense and all those things that happen outside of regular daycare hours that we can't always attend to. So it's, it's been a struggle. This is Liana again, and I wanna talk a little bit about um, feeling invisible on campus and invisibility on campus. Um, so in terms of being a pregnant mother on campus, I remember um, you know, feeling like I needed to keep it a secret for as long as possible because um, I was the first in my program to get pregnant and I didn't know what was gonna happen and I felt scared, you know, and I felt so much joy in my pregnancy and I didn't want that protective bubble to be burst. And so I waited a long time until I was about six months um, before I started to tell people. Um, and um, so that meant that everything that I went through as my body was changing and the emotions and adjusting and preparing, I had to go through that alone. Um, or just my partner and I so that was you know very difficult um, and I would also say that even after I told people um, because I'm a gordita even being eight months pregnant I was still not visibly pregnant to most folks and so that was very difficult because I felt like I had to assert myself as a pregnant bodied woman all the time and so if I would be walking down the hall and I would be waiting to talk to a professor there would be two students sitting on chairs a la gustos and I would say you know I, I would be waiting and waiting and you know putting my hands on my panza to kind of like show I'm pregnant yo um, but it wasn't until I would just shout hey I'm eight months pregnant can I please sit down that they would finally you know give up the seat and they'd be like oh you know so sorry you know but I felt like it was like that all the time just feeling very invisible on in my pregnancy and also um, having to feel like I needed to hide and also be ashamed of my pregnancy and so there was when I did finally come out there was very few people who congratulated me in fact I can only remember one um, who was actually like yay you know that's so exciting I'm so happy it was actually um, Danny Solorzano who was very excited that I was pregnant um, everybody else was just like oh what are you gonna do you know and it was this very like stern conversation about what are you gonna do you know and so um, yeah, just the joy that you're supposed to feel in your pregnancy when you're an academic, that joy, I feel, is robbed from you because it's more about what are you going to do? Are you going to drop out? You know, so again, it's that Latina pregnant dropout stereotype following you even in, when you're in your 30s and when you're in graduate school. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to Nora. Yeah. So similar, similar experiences, I think, um, but also you know, different nuances, I think, of being um, invisible. Um, and again, pregnancy, right? As, as happy as I was about it, as most mujeres know, it's very different for each person, physically, how they, how they adjust, how physically, whatever, whatever shape your body is in, in terms of health, like your body can react differently. And, um, and just facing that alone, and, and I think was really, really hard. 
Um, but I also think there's so many um, conditions on, on campus um, and cultural conditions, but structural conditions that really made me feel very invisible in some places and very too visible in other places where folks made improper comments, you know, in the library or folks just, um, you know, wouldn't give up a seat in some space, even when you're, you know, physically pregnant presenting. And so I think it's been, it's that mixture, right? And and feeling like, wow, I'm, I'm, this is really happening to me. Like every day that I come to campus, um, you know, what's going to happen today? Like, what, what, am, what do I have to prep for? Like this, and you're trying to take care of yourself, of your body, of your baby, and going through all those emotions. I remember, you know, at some points just trying not to cry, right? Like trying to go home and, and stay healthy and stay happy and thinking like I have to protect my baby against all those crazy comments that I just heard, against all those crazy questions about my career and where it's going to go and the potential quote unquote that I have. And um, so it was, it was just very disheartening in many ways and there were few sources and few people that were very supportive and um and very happy for me and i think it was just because it was um i was pregnant the first time throughout my master's programs folks were trying to figure out what are you going to do are you going to go on to the phd and so everybody was super concerned about what you were going to do next and and for me i was trying to get into doctoral programs and 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 so I had to have those difficult conversations with other universities that I applied to, um, not just, you know, and that I got accepted to in terms of what are the resources for me as a parent? What are the resources for me, what, you know, what I, you know, financially, um, culturally? And I got a lot of really problematic responses, right? And it's partially why I stayed at UCLA because I had a very supportive advisor and I had family close by that I knew would be able to help me to a certain degree. So, um, you know, and so having gone to another program didn't seem like the most feasible, you know, thing at the moment because of the responses I was getting about my identity as a parent, especially with such a young kid. Um, so it's it's really, um, it's been, we've shared a lot of common struggles, I think. And, and I think also one thing that we've talked about as an as a collective is that we, we have, we share similar experiences, but we know there's a lot of mothers on campus and and other universities and colleges and and. Um, you know, educational spaces that have different um, different strengths and different needs and different um, situations, and so we want definitely to make sure that our space on campus is is a is a collective space that um, if there's other other groups that organically come out from there, right, that, that we definitely need to make them happen. So we're we're glad to be here today, and thank you all for having us here and sharing some of the some of these themes and struggles at UCLA. All right, so um, we've got a petition uh, going on right now. Uh, the petition is available on change.org. It's titled Support Reproductive Justice for Mothers at UCLA by Mothers of Color in Academia at UCLA. We have a Facebook group, and um, it's also titled Mothers of Color in Academia at UCLA. You can find the link there, or you can look it up on change.org. Um, we briefly want to talk about our demands, just so that if you're like, okay, Am I gonna support? If so, like, what are they actually asking for? Um, we ask for a permanent administrator who will be responsible for advocating, coordinating, and implementing our demands. We're also asking for a counselor who can specialize in reproductive health, including miscarriages and abortions. I know those are taboo topics, but we have to have to provide resources for a lot of mujeres out there who are struggling with miscarriages and abortions. We heard about someone just the other day at the Undercommons who was dealing with an abortion, and so it, it's tough, and, and we need spaces to support that. Um, we're also asking for subsidized carpooling, parking for parenting students who must drive their children to and from campus. We ask for an inventory and a map of lactation spaces on campus. We're also asking for additional lactation spaces clearly marked, clean, accessible, stocked, and supplied in every building on campus. We're asking for changing rooms, family-friendly rooms, a lactation specialist, an online parenting portal, and an orientation for parenting students. Um, those are some of our demands. You can view a longer list through our petition. Um, we have a, a letter that we've written for support. Um, and now I'm gonna pass it on to Liana, who's gonna remind us about our day of action. And our day of action is on May 10th. So just to remind you, 
um, please tune in on our Facebook page. Again, it's Mothers of Color in Academia. We'll give you guys updates about up upcoming meetings, planning strategies, um, and artwork for, for our demonstration. And you'll also get lots of details about the day of action. Um, I think it's really important to point out that this is not our department's, it's a very larger structural systemic issue. And I think it's important to point out that what we're asking for is not the moon, it's what's fair and what's just, and it's what's legal, and it's what other universities have done. Um, UC Davis has a very successful program, and so we're not asking for the moon, we're asking for something that's very, very practical and legal and just. So as you can see, these are a bunch of amazing chingonas just really pushing it out there, right? And so um, this is a labor of love. And we're going to take a short break. We want to um, give Marta from Quetzal a big thank you for uh, letting us use the breast pump waltz um, song that we're going to play that we heard when we all got together in Arizona. Michelle <coughs> Tellez was uh, showed it to us, and we were like, oh, my God, like this is... This is legit. We know this sound too well for those of us who pump. Um, so we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back and enjoy the song. Hope you enjoyed that that song. Thank you again to Marta from Quetzal for sharing that with us. Um, we are now. We just want to um, give an update on the um, some events that we announced from last week uh, from our first podcast. So um, there were two events that happened, which were um, pretty incredible events. The uh, International Women's Day March, organized by Affirm, a transnational uh, feminist of color organization, um, and they have a chapter here in LA. Um, and uh, the second event, the Amigos Who, Amigos Who Run. So um, I was able to attend both events. Um, I went to the International Women's Day March uh, with my son. Um, I went with um, another friend another mama phd and um you know so we did the march together and it was just really powerful to um have this experience with my son and um and uh you know to see especially at the international women's day march um the women who were leading the march were uh, it was the mama's contingent so um so it was really powerful to see that although me and the group i was with uh we were all the way in the back because the kids were kind of like <laughs> you know it was just kind of hard to keep up with the kids and at one point my son Aloncito like ran directly to the the uh LAPD on bikes at the end of the march and I'm like no no <laughs> don't run towards the LAPD <laughs> at the International <laughs> Women's Day march cuz he got upset about something but um so that was so that was a really beautiful event and um 
the Ameo Suran was also uh, another wonderful event here uh, organized by local women from Boyle Heights. Um, and it was their second annual event. And this year, there it was actually an amazing turnout of over 700 women. And um, Judy and I were able to go. And um, I don't know, so I'm going to pass it over to Judy if she wants, she's going to share about her experience. Yeah, thank you, Sassy, for inviting me. I actually, I live up in Ontario, so I drove like around 6.30 in the morning to do it. I was like, I was almost gonna fake it because you know how the kids at Wella, like they know, like <laughs> they know you're gonna, you have a mission to do. So my baby was like on my breast the whole night, but I managed, I said, I'm gonna do it. Um, it was amazing, thank you. Uh, um, you know, you always wanna make time for working out or running or doing anything. And I always say, yeah, I'm gonna do it, but I, I don't do it. I wanna just hang out with my kids, so. I went without my kids. I was planning on taking my, my the kids, but it was way too early. And and good thing I kind of did it though, because with my double stroller, it would have been crazy on the <laughs> sidewalks. It was crazy, but it was really amazing, amazing time. And um, um, I mean, I, I think even um, spreading the word out to to more to more women. I I told my cousin, and I t she told some people that she goes to the gym with in El Monte. So it's really cool. So bring to to do it um, another year again. So I think now we're gonna do the everything parenting fails. <laughs> so yeah, we have some. I thought you know last time we did the um, the, the 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 proud mama moment, and we wanted to share some parenting fails. But um, <laughs> I think I think it'd be cool to just kind of do that. So and then we have some shout outs after that, and some social media plugins. We want to make sure we mention. Um, so let's talk about, like, very briefly, some parenting fails. Maybe start with our guests. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So just, just one parenting fail per week? <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> um, so this week, um, I think the biggest parenting fail that or mama fail that I had all week was not having my kids in bed by 11 and it's a fail for me because I turn into a monster after 9 p.m. I get up early so somehow letting things get out of control till 11 p.m. was just not good you know it just wasn't for me them for them it was fun they were both up and all riled up and you know but then it's very tiring so I, I just you know take it in one day at a time and I'm promising next week even though we're on technically on vacation they are not keeping me up till 11 they are not um this is nana parenting fail i guess would have been on friday last friday um i have an amazing advisor who's been so supportive of me and my daughter and my little family and they had us over for dinner and um, I don't know if this is like a parenting fail, but I felt really bad because my daughter did not want to play with her son. And I was really embarrassed because he really, really, really loved her and wanted to play with her. And she would just be like, mm, mm. and she would just like <laughs> look away and just, I don't know if she was being coy, but I almost wanted to like force her and like whisper in her ear and be like, mira. Tienes que tratarlo bien. But um, I was just really embarrassed and I felt like I had to apologize for her. But, you know, I don't know if that's a parenting fail. Maybe she was just feeling sassy that day. The next day she was totally fine and wanted to play with kids. But yeah, I feel really bad because it was my advisor and she's been so supportive and my daughter was mean to her kid. Dale, <laughs> Christian. Okay. So my parenting fell is Hanitio, my two-year-old, is saying what the fuck, and for and it's like an expression, like what the fuck, right? Like he's like what the fuck is this? So he was playing with two similar dinosaurs, the same same dinosaurs, one's orange and one's darker, which I thought was really interesting. So Daddy and I were like having a conversation about it, cause he's like we're like oh it's the same dinosaur and Hanitio's, but he looks at the gray one, the darker one, he's like. This one's angry. What the fuck? And I'm like, oh shit. And that's like, that's all you, mom. And I'm like, nah, that's not on me. <laughs> but it's true. So we're like, he totally says this at school. So I'm sorry. Um, but it's a form of expression. We're like, honey, too, we can't use that word. But then we're like, if we put too much attention to it, like he's gonna continue using it. So we're like, okay. So we're just trying to figure out ways to not to change the language. 
but I mean, at least it was it was a, it was a, a time of inquiry when he was really questioning the difference in these two dinosaurs. But yeah, that was our my mama or parenting fell of the week. Uh, for me, I struggle with this every time with my older one. Um, uh, I had a Lunita little girl first, um, which I loved. I wanted a little girl. But I think it goes back to the same thing. Her assassins, I think I build her up or I raised her where to be too strong, where she speaks up way too much. And so every day it's like me and her go at it. Like, it's crazy. I'm just like, she does that little attitude. Like, I don't want to talk. You don't understand me, mom. And she'll walk away. And I'm just like, ah, uh, you know. And so a lot of times I catch myself like, okay, calm down. You know, she's not your sister. <laughs> so you have to, like, you raised her. You wanted her to speak up and, you know, say say what she thought. And so I struggle with that every every time. But um, she finds ways to, like, tell me, no, it's because I wanted to do this. And you want me to do this instead or something like that but so I think I I don't I don't I, I don't ever know how to how to handle it I, I think I I embrace the fact that she talks you know she speaks of on on what she's thinking um but my mom and she's like es que la dejas hacer lo que ella le da la gana you know and I'm like no mom like she should you know um so that's one of my things that I still struggle every day it's not just this week <laughs> I, I am a little ashamed. So my parenting fail has to do with technology. Uh, this is finals week. I mentioned one of my jobs is I'm a grader, so I grade a lot of papers on Turnitin. And I've been letting him use YouTube. <laughs> and he has memorized a bunch of Christmas songs <laughs> because he, didn't, he never got over Christmas. <laughs> so, so he's just like randomly singing Christmas songs now as I get him ready in the morning and I'm like, oh man, he's been watching too much YouTube. I say I'm ashamed because I know folks who are anti-technology and anti-screen time and I'm just like, fuck, you gotta do what you gotta do. So that's me. Um, mine is related to um, the the first podcast. So, you know, after the first podcast aired, you know, I was all, you know, excited and and um, I was on the computer, and Alicetha was there, and my son was there, and, um, and you know, and I was just, I was just kind of like in a funny mood, so, you know, and I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if that Mac Dre song was our theme song, like, <laughs> too hard for the fucking radio, so then I go to YouTube, <laughs> and I look it up, and I start playing it, and then Alicetha listens to, like, the hook, and he's like, mommy, this song has bad words. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, damn. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't play it in front of my six-year-old, you know? But, you know, at the same time, like, so this is what we mentioned earlier before we came to the studio, but, um, you know, we don't necessarily, we, we want to talk about how motherhood shouldn't always be about respectability or respectability politics, you know? But at, at the same time, like, and I don't want my kid to be the only one in his kindergarten class saying, like, <laughs> Mac Dre lyrics so um so that was just so I was just like all right okay um but I still thought it was I still think we should have that as our theme song <laughs> <laughs> um now so those are our parenting fails um our next item is uh, we're going to just talk really briefly about the feedback that we got from the first podcast all I have to say is thank you, thank you, thank you. Mil gracias a todos for listening. Um, I've been blown away, amazed. I've been crying at all the like comments that people are making, both on the Chicana Mother Work site, but also on the petition for Mocas de UCLA. Yes. A lot of support. I had no idea. Folks from other states are listening. If you're listening, holla. <laughs> thank you so much. And also, um, we just posted our Vimeo, and we already got some really beautiful, powerful feedback. So thank you so much for supporting our work. This is a community effort, and we're really grateful. You know, continue, um, continue emailing us, sending us feedback. We want to invite. If if it was my case, everyone should be here, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we're really excited to connect across borders, um, across the airwaves. And so please continue giving us feedback. We would love to hear from you. Ideas and questions are also invited. So muchas gracias de todo corazón. Okay, so I think I have to do a social media plugin. I was about to pass the mic. Um, so 
Join the Chicana Motherwork Facebook group, even if you don't identify as a Chicana. It's exclusive for mamas of color and allies. Follow us on Twitter, Chicana, at Chicana Mothers. Follow us on our website. Our next podcast will be on April 1st at uh, 1 p.m. And please donate. We're trying to um, purchase our, how do you call it? Domain. That? Domain. Yeah. We're trying to purchase our, don- our donate domain name. Um, and Miss Judy. Um, also, please share um, anywhere on social media and use the hashtag Chicana Mother Work, um, one word. Thanks so much for your support, and don't forget to mention the Revolutionary Women um, event hosted by a firm on May 5th. <laughs> May 5th, uh, our, and our uh, MOCA, the UCLA action on May 10th, right? Yeah. So then for the part that everybody gets excited about, this is our shout-outs. <laughs> <laughs> wants to go you want you want to start i guess can start with the shout outs shout outs to anybody girl. <laughs> shout outs to my advisor thank you for supporting me shout out to all of my the trap queens <laughs> shout out to the trap queens you know who you are um thank you for supporting me and inviting me to endless slumber parties um yeah that's all that's it <laughs> special shout out to my partner that's listening and um helping out at home thank you so much to my family as well for um listening and to my students those who emailed me this week with um with uh, supportive statements and just uh general praise for mochas thank you so much to everyone for being super supportive on campus and again there's a lot of work to do so thank you so much Shout out to Ahi, my uh, 2016 Grad Fellows cohort. I really miss y'all. And shout out to um, Joanna, Maria Elizabeth, Esti, Neri, Rudy, and Alonso, and also to my partner and my baby. Uh, shout out to my um, hubby, he's listening at work. He's gonna make fun of my voice. Uh, <laughs> that's what he's listening for. And then um, my special shout out for my prima, who's been helping me out. Um, we actually grew up together, and then we got distant, and then we're back together. And she's amazing help for me. Um, so I want to give her a shout out. Thank you so much for helping me and loving my children. Shout out to my partner as well for cooking for my friends <laughs> and for my family. He's making my mama dinner this Saturday. So thank you for cooking because I am not a great cook. Um, shout out to my sister for helping me with a lot of childcare on the weekends. Shout out to my friends, Esther, for Skyping with me. Um, Kim Mas Marilu for always talking to me when I freak out. You're the first person I go to. Ceci, everybody. That's it. Um, shout out to two PhD uh, or uh, graduate student Chicana mamas, Claribel from who's in Long Beach and uh, Diane from USC. So shout out to both of them, and hopefully we could have them on the show at some point. Um, also, thank you to Maga, who's actually here working at Espacio right now for um, her help to make this podcast happen. Also, um, Marisol from UC Berkeley. Um, she was my um, when I became pregnant as a college student, um, she was kind of my grad mentor, um, and she herself had had a child while in college, so she just has provided so much support um, and in so many ways, and um, so shout out to Marisol and the amazing work that she does as a mom and uh, scholar and in all the areas that she works. Um, anything? I think that's so it. I think those are our shout outs. So thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure having our guest here. Thank you, Liana. Thank you, Nora. And we're happy to have Judy here. We're going to drag her in every time we can. And um, stay tuned for, we're inviting Michelle Tellez on April 22nd to speak at Danielle Solorzano's Rack. We'll keep posted for that. Um, And have a good rest of the weekend. Y'all have a good one. Take care. Gracias. Gracias. Adios. 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 Adios.